Grace, mercy, and peace be yours from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning we meditate upon the gospel lesson which was previously read, especially these words. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. At the time of the early church, the apostles had passed on their teachings to those who became bishops in that church. A lot of those bishops arose a bishop later by the name of Marcion, who saw himself as being one of those who was sustaining the teachings of the church, but he wasn't. But Marcion believed, by the influence of outside influences, was that the Old Testament God was a different God completely from the God of the New Testament. Obviously, you can see how this was contrary to what the apostles had taught. In fact, long before we would hear of Jefferson cutting passages out of his Bible, Marcion was doing the same thing to a greater degree. But he was cutting out entire books so that the books that he had would be consistent with his beliefs. Like I said, he was influenced by outside influences. He was influenced by the Greeks and by the Gnostics who saw the created world as problematic And they saw this God who came into the world as a God who freed us from this created world. Now, as I say this, though, we still see many things like this today. We see many people today who have a hard time with the God of the Old Testament in relation to the God of the New Testament, quote. They don't like the God of the Old Testament. They see that Old Testament God as angry, as unjust, as unfair. For example, if you look at authors like the so-called New Atheists, names you've perhaps heard like uh, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris. These men all believe that this God of the Old Testament is a God who is angry and unjust. For example, Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion, says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character of all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. You see, for them, it's offensive to believe in such a God. Of course, It's not just zealous atheists who have this trouble. I have a parishioner at my congregation whose grandson has recently started reading the Bible. He hasn't necessarily been attending church, but he's interested in the Christian faith. And so in reading the Bible, he started with the Old Testament. And he's found himself troubled by the same things. Now, of course, as Christians, part of what we have to understand is what we see God doing in the Old Testament is displaying his judgment against sin. God hates sin, and He should hate sin. He is perfectly good. He is perfectly love, and sin is the opposite of that. And because of that, He then demands for that sin to be cut off from His people. If you read the Old Testament law, you see a number of places where God says this. He says that the one who does this shall be cut off from His people. And that language of cutting off is a play on what we hear in circumcision. The circumcision of Jesus we're talking about this morning, but In the Old Testament, when circumcision was instituted, 
The Lord said to, to Abram, Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. So just as foreskin, or excuse me, as circumcision cuts off the flesh of the foreskin, so also the sin should be cut off from the people. What it is is that God demands this cutting off because it saves his people. You see, God at his heart loves his people. He loves them and desires what's best for them. And you can see this even in the Old Testament. You can see this, for example, in Moses. If you know the story of Moses redeeming the people from their slavery in Egypt, you might remember the story of the golden calf. And in that story, the Israelites create the idol of the golden calf and they worship it. And this makes God extremely angry because they've already received the Ten Commandments and yet they worship this false god. And so in God's anger, he says he's going to destroy his people. But Moses come, comes and he intercedes on behalf of the Israelites. But you see, we see God's love because God put Moses into that place to intercede for his people. Moses is acting as a picture, a precursor of Jesus. Now as I say that, I don't want to get ahead of myself. So as we think about this love of God, cutting off sin from the people, another example we can use is the example of cancer. If you think about what a surgeon does with cancer, I had a woman in my congregation who had kidney cancer. And what the doctor did is he, he found this cancer in her kidney and he took the kidney out carefully and removed it so that that cancer wouldn't spread to the, to the lungs, to the liver, perhaps even to the pancreas. What he was doing was cutting out the poisonous cancer to save the body of this woman. It's painful and it hurts, but in the end, the body is saved. That's what God intends with the cutting off of this sin. In fact, this is exactly what God demands in his law, as we just heard. Now, of course, as I bring up the law itself, that's a whole conversation as well, isn't it? Often we hear people saying that they don't like the Old Testament God, that they don't like the Old Testament in general because the Old Testament is all law. They like the New Testament because it's gospel. Of course, that in and of itself isn't true. Just, I just spoke of something that was revealing the gospel in the Old Testament, Moses interceding on behalf of God's people. And Jesus himself, if you look at his words, speaks many more words of law, of command, than he does of gospel. But I think we hear this this way because Jesus speaks so much of love. And love is a wonderful message, isn't it? That the world should love is a wonderful message. This is a message that even those outside of the church can grasp that we should love. I think about a song from my generation growing up, Heal the World, a song all about love, that if we would just love, then the world would be healed and we would make it a better place. Those of you that are older than me can maybe relate to some of the older songs, like the Beatles, All You Need is love, or what the world needs now is love, sweet love. Well, that message is lo of love is a, is a good thing because if we would all love, sure, the world would be a better place. It's a good message, a message of good news for the world. But the reality is, it's not a good message to hear for you, or you, or you, or me. The reality is, we don't love as we should. When Jesus 
brings this message of love, when he commands us to love, think about what he says. He says that we should love God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, and all of our strength. And that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. And we don't do that. And how do we know? Well, how do we know what that love is? How do we know how that love demonstrates itself? Well, we know that in the Ten Commandments. Do you want to know how to love God? Have no other gods before Him. Do not misuse His name. And remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. That is, do not despise preaching in His word, but gladly hear and learn it. Do you want to know how to love your neighbor? Honor those who are in authority over you. Do not murder people, but help them in every physical need. Honor marriage. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not gossip. Do not covet. In fact, one of the things that I often tell my congregation is that if you don't have the Ten Commandments memorized, memorize them. Know them. Know Luther's explanations of those commandments all the more because those reveal to us what that love should be. In fact, we often think that God will reveal this special will to us in, in prayer and in a mystical way. Well, if we want to know what God wants us to do, Look at what he has revealed. Look at his commands. But coming back to the law, we hear this, this message of love, even though it should strike our hearts and condemn us, we hear this message of love as something that's much easier to bear, we think, than the Old Testament law with all of its commands, with not cooking the, the beef in its mother's milk, with not eating shellfish, with making sure you're cleansed in all the ritual ways. And so... We like, don't like the Old Testament because of this. We don't like the Old Testament God because he seems angry. And we don't like the Old Testament self because it seems overbearing. And I was meditating upon this last week, though, and I was, I was reminded again that Jesus reveals the whole of this. We don't like the Old Testament God because we can't reconcile who that God is without seeing Christ. In other words, we can't reconcile who this God is outside of Christ. Luther would say, there is no God outside of Christ. Or to look at what we heard last week in, in the Gospel from John, in John chapter 1, John says, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then he goes on and he says, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made Him known. You see, that's the problem that we run into. That's the problem that Hitchens and Dawkins run into. That's the problem that my parishioner's grandson is running into. We think that God must be a monster when we seek God outside of Christ. Because we can't really know what God thinks. We can't really know who God is until we look the face of Jesus. And what do we see there? Well, if you remember what Paul says in Galatians, he says that when the fullness of time had come, God sent His Son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Under the law. That law demanded that flesh be cut off. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. This Jesus entered into the world, and his flesh was cut off. 
for us. And when his flesh was cut off, presumably for the first time in history, God bled. This God who seems so angry, who seems so unjust, who seems so fire and brimstone, he bled. And in his bleeding, he didn't reveal weakness. No, he revealed glory. He revealed his heart, his love. At the seminary, and the uh, vicars up here can, can attest to this, we have a, a certain professor who's rather gruff and intimidating in class. He's one of those professors that you could see having a, a hard time relating with possibly outside of class because he seems to sort of keep the students at bay. And like I said, it can be quite intimidating. I've, however, I've heard numerous stories of this professor helping seminarians who are in need. In fact, I heard one story where he went to a seminarian's house and left money on their porch and tried to sneak away before they saw him. God is like that. Or like the teacher who is extremely strict in class but is willing to stay until 10 at night because she's tutoring students after school for free. This is what our God is like. He seems scary. In fact, we should be afraid of him. In fact, we should be so afraid of God that we don't know where else to turn in our sin but to turn to the source of our fear. And when we do that, then our fear is relieved because we see the heart of this God. We see that he loves us so much that he enters into this world and he bleeds. You see, the circumcision is just the first shedding of his blood. And it's utterly important. As we hear this God being placed under the law, that's exactly what we see in circumcision. Circumcision was the placing someone under that burden of the law. That weight that you can't bear. That weight, that load that you can't carry. The elementary principles of this world that are too heavy for you, this God shed his blood at his circumcision to bear that for you. And that's his first sacrifice. Now, I'm sure there were many more sheddings of blood, scrapes, and bruises. But you all know the greatest shedding of blood of all. That's the cross. There on the cross, this God of the Old Testament, this God who pursued nations and overcame them to clean out his people, this God who came in judgment, this God who gave rule after rule after rule, this God on the altar of the cross bled and died there for you, for us. And worst of all, just like those nations around Israel suffered judgment, he suffered that and he suffered worse. You see, not only did his body stop working, not only did his heart stop beating, not only did his lungs stop breathing, but he suffered the judgment of being cut off from God. As he cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This man in whom God dwelt was cut off from God. The God who demanded that sin be cut off, cut off his own son for us. And in that, he was cut off as you should be. He died as you should die, and he was forsaken as you should be forsaken, so that now you are not. Now, you are grafted into him by baptism. 
You see, baptism replaced circumcision. Circumcision was in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, but now baptism is the circumcision not done by human hands, but the circumcision of Christ. Him circumcising your heart, burying you in His death, and raising you again by faith. So that just as we heard in the letter to the Romans, that faith is counted to you as righteousness. In baptism, you were joined to Him there. I don't know if you've ever seen a, a skin grafting, but it's like that. I have a parishioner who had skin cancer on his hand, and so what they did is they cut out a piece of his skin from his leg, and they grafted it on his hand after they had removed the cancer. As they did that, he had to sanitize that area. They had to, he had to continually remove the infection, and he had to continually take medicine to prevent rejection of that. Well, baptism is that grafting of you into the body of Christ. You're joined to him there. You are, your infection is prevented and, and staved off. You are sanitized by hearing the word of absolution as you repent of your sins. You receive the medicine that prevents your rejection as you receive the very body and blood of Jesus on the cross given and shed for you. The blood of the one who shed his blood and his circumcision for you. So, Hitchens and Dawkins, you don't like the Old Testament God. You should, because he was willing to suffer everything for you. Marcion, you'd rather have a God not attached to his creation. You should, because you could live in his new creation for you eternally. And Christians, the same goes for you. The Old Testament seems hard, but remember that this Yahweh who spoke to Moses, this I am who spoke from the burning bush, is the I am who dwelt bodily in his son Jesus. So yes, it, there is conflict, or at least it seems like there is conflict between the old and the new. But all of this con conflict is resolved in the birth of the one whom we celebrated last week. And in him we see the one laid in the manger, the one fulfilling the promise of Abraham, the one who is circumcised. We see who this God really is. He is the God who bleeds and who dies out of love for his people. He is the God who demanded that flesh be cut off, but who was cut off for you, for us. Amen. Now may the peace of this God, which transcends all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in faith in Christ Jesus. Amen.